0: All right, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read a a short section of Scripture here, uh, verses 41 through 46. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from day, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? This is the word of the Lord. All right. About every year, uh, I hear the story of somebody who has deconstructed their faith. And usually it's either like a a public figure, you know, somebody who's a fairly well-known Christian who has Come out publicly and said, "I don't consider myself a Christian anymore." Most recently, for me, uh, it was I heard the story of a man that I knew when I was much younger. He was in ministry. He he left the ministry and then he left the faith later on in life, and um, I, it just has started causing me to start thinking a lot about these sorts of things. Um, one of the most common arguments for people who say they have deconstructed their faith. And now just take a moment and think about that that phrase, deconstructing your faith. Now, what that typically means is someone comes and says, you know, hey, I grew up going to church, Uh, it's just sort of been a habit of my life, Uh, but then I started to really think carefully. And when I really started to think, I realized that Christianity is not true for these reasons. And the idea is that deconstructing your faith is a very reasonable process. You sort of work this out in your head, you you talk about it, you get it out, and then eventually you sort of come to the place of living that out. One of the most common arguments for people who are deconstructing their faith goes like this. The Bible says that God is all-powerful and all-loving. There is evil and suffering and pain in the world. So either God, is, God wants to fix the problem but can't, and therefore He is not all-powerful, or he, is, uh, he, does, he can fix it but He doesn't want to, therefore He is not all-loving. Therefore, the God of the Bible cannot exist. Now, I am, I'm not going to try to answer that argument today. That's not what this message is about, not what this text is about. I want to tell you there are very strong arguments responding to that. Uh, it, is, it is not a good argument against Christianity. It is, the problem of evil is a problem, but that argument as it flows is a very poor argument. Having said that, what I want to talk about this morning is, I call it in the title, The insincerity of doubt. What I should have written is the insincerity of unbelief in Christianity. Christianity. There is lots of room for doubt. Uh, There, all of us struggle. But what I want to talk to you about today is the insincerity of unbelief and the humility of faith. So, the insincerity of doubt person who says that, that there is suffering in the world and therefore there is no God is not following through logically. So just, let's just think about this for a moment here. The person who says um, there is real suffering in the world, people are uh, living in poverty, they are living uh, with injustice, they are living in all of these terrible situations. Uh, There are situations of abuse. uh, There are situations of uh, of just disease and death and suffering and all the things that go into that. And there is no God to help them. Now, let me just show you the insincerity of that because there's a logical implication of those two statements. Think about it this way. Let's, Let's think about it this way. Before I get to that, there is an insincerity of faith as well. You know, we, we probably have met people who said, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I consider myself a Christian. But when you look at their life, there is no clear practice of that statement of faith. They don't, they don't go to church anywhere, they don't they live as a Christian, they don't live any differently than the people who don't claim. And we, we recognize that as at least some level of insincerity. But what we often forget is that there's an insincerity of unbelief as well. So the person who says there is real suffering in the world and there is no God to help them leaves out the therefore. You know, if you look at logic, there are two premises and there's a, there's a logical implication suffering in the world, no God to help them. Therefore, I should spend the rest of my life trying to help people who are suffering. But that's almost never the implication of people who deconstruct their faith. In fact, almost the opposite is the case. The people who spend their lives trying to relieve suffering and injustice are people most likely of deeply committed faith. For instance, Mother Teresa, who spent her life helping those who were poor and dying in India, uh, was a strongly committed Christian. She believed in Jesus, and she did this stuff because she believed that her faith compelled her to. Or Martin Luther King Jr., who saw the injustice of racism in the South, did not say, well, you know, let's forget, clearly this means there is no God Let's get to work helping people. Instead, what he said is let justice run down like water. In other words, let us become more faithfully Christian, not less Christian. The reality is that people who, uh, who, who deconstruct their faith and say, well, you know, I've really thought about it carefully. There's suffering in the world. There's no God to help. Don't then turn around and spend their lives helping other people Typically, it is a, a sort of a justification to go do what I want to do. Aldous Huxley, who was a famous author, actually said that. that He denied Christianity so that he could live the way that he wanted. I mean, one of the very few really honest uh, atheists, he said he denied Christianity so that he could do what he wanted to do. Want to see in the text? Just before Jesus asks this question, he has asked three questions by different groups of people, and so what the text actually says is the first question that's asked is, "Should we pay taxes to Caesar?" What I want to show you is the insincerity of this approach. Uh, so these groups of people come and but sort of behind. The, these questions, is the, the, the main question, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the king that was promised in the Old Testament? And so these religious experts are coming with questions. And the idea is, well, if you're supposed to be the Messiah, you ought to be able to answer these questions. And we'll see whether or not you're the Messiah. We're going to question you. So the first question is, Should we pay taxes to Caesar? But the question is insincere because the text actually says it was asked to trap Jesus in his words. And here's how it would have trapped him. If you say, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then they would turn to the Jews and say, see that because the Jews hated the Romans. They were the oppressors. If Jesus said, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, then these questioners would turn to the Romans and say, you see that? Here's a guy who's trying to overthrow the government. Get him. And so whatever he answers, it is intended to trap him. It's not a question to say, look, we're really wondering if you're the Messiah and we need more information. It's that we we are convinced you're not the Messiah. The second question is um, in regards to the resurrection of the dead. And I think this is supposed to be like um, sort, of, sort of like a brain teaser, I guess. So there's two groups that are there, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. And the Sadducees did not believe in a general resurrection at the end of time. And so one of the Sadducees asked the question, a hypothetical question about a woman who marries a man and her husband dies. And then she marries, she remarries another man, and he dies. And she remarries another man, and he and so on and so on and so on until she's got this string of guys who have um. She's married, and they've died, and then she dies. And so the question is, at the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And the implication is, it's an unanswerable question. You know, there's no way that you can just simply figure that out, is the idea. This was, I think, the thing that probably stumped The Pharisees and they're probably fuming as as they ask this question, and then the third question is which commandment is most important, and I think this is the debatable question because there were ongoing debates in the first century about which one of the commandments was the most important commandment, and uh, and so what I'm trying to show you is in each one of these questions. The question is insincere. In other words, these Pharisees and Sadducees are not coming to Jesus sincerely asking who He is or if He is really the Messiah. They're saying, we don't think you're the Messiah and we're really going to ask you a bunch of questions to prove it. Now, all I'm trying to say is... If you are here today and you've kind of bought into that argument about suffering in the world and and God not doing anything about it and therefore there is no God, um, would you at least be willing to recognize, look into your heart and see if there is not some small part of you that doesn't want there to be a God? That your life would be lived on your terms now, uh, to be honest with you, I've got to warn you, that's a hopeless existence. Uh, to, to live in a world that was created by chance with no hope of anything beyond this world is a pretty hopeless way to live. But, if the, but if, at least if you're going down that road, would you at least recognize in your own heart there is desire. Desire. You know, we like to think we are looking at the world objectively, but the reality is all of us are biased. There's a bias towards faith. There's a bias against faith. And part of the reality of who we are as human beings is a desire for there not to be a God. Now, the amazing thing about this is how Jesus handles this. What I want you to see is that Jesus does not push these guys further away. He seeks to draw them in by his answers. Now, let me, let me just stop and say, I have always read this as um, these guys coming and asking these insincere questions and Jesus sort of doing this you know, very intelligent sidestep you know, like, you thought you had me. Ha ha. You know, he gives this brilliant answer that sort of stuns these guys. And, 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 you know, that they don't know, they realize he's much smarter. In other words, I always read this as Jesus' intention to show that he is much smarter than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I realized that's really about my heart rather than Jesus' heart. Like, I want to be the guy who is so smart that when somebody asks a hard question, I just stump them, you know, with my brilliance. We, think, we tend to think that Jesus is like that, but I, I really think there is something much deeper that is happening here. Jesus answers the first question. And the question, of course... Um, Is in regards to should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's." And we all go, "Oh, oh, that's good," you know. Like if you've ever watched an apologist, you know, who was able to take—I was just listening to uh, Tim Keller, who who they just published uh, as a podcast um, his questioning Christianity series where he he gives a speech, and then takes questions from people who are not Christians. And, you know, he gives these brilliant answers and always think, Oh, man, I just wish I could just, you know, in the moment come up with something that brilliant, you know, and just really be able to just blow people away with this, you know, this ability to defend the gospel. Well, you tend to think that's what Jesus was doing. But Jesus, think about what he says. He says, Take out a coin. Whose image is on the coin? They say Caesar's image. He says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Now, who is made in the image of God? We are. So Jesus is saying, give yourselves to God. So what I'm trying to say is that Jesus is actually answering the background question of, is he really the Messiah? And his answer is not, yes, I'm the Messiah, let me me show you how smart I am, and then you'll know. But his answer is, give yourselves entirely to God, and then you'll know that I'm the Messiah. So Jesus, then then they ask him the next question about this resurrection from the dead. Okay, this woman marries these seven guys, and now, in the resurrection, whose wife is he? Is she? And Jesus says, uh, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Now, just think about the implication of this. If you will get into the scripture, and if you will seek God to understand his power, then you will know that I am the Messiah. In other words, the closer that you get to God, the more you will understand that I am the one that God has sent into the world. And and the third question is maybe the most obvious. Which one is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, guys, if you will do that, if you will love God with everything in you, then you will see that I am the Messiah. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus, in a, you know, there, there's such a temptation for us to just reject people who are not sincere. I, I mean, have you ever had this scenario happen? Your doorbell rings, you, you go to the door, and there's a stranger standing there who says, hey, how you doing today? And you're like, oh boy. What are you selling? Like this is probably one of the weirdest ones I've ever had. Was a guy selling vacuum cleaners, and he, he's holding this this like pack this thing of uh, like Clorox wipes. And he says, "Hey, I'm just here today. I want to give you this gift." I'm like, "Oh, okay." You know, I'm like, "What is this? this? Is weird." But you know, so I set it down, and the guy starts going into a spiel, and I'm like, "Look, I'm I'm really not interested. I'm not in the market for a vacuum cleaner. Don't need a vacuum cleaner." So thanks. And he goes, okay, let me just get this back. Reaches in and takes the thing back. And I'm like, wow. you Talk about insincerity. I'm like, how quickly can I shut the door on this guy? Like, we don't like it when people approach us in an insincere way. We tend to push them away. But look at what Jesus is doing. These guys who have come to trap him, to stump him, to embarrass him, to try to prove to, to themselves and the crowds that he's not the Messiah. Jesus doesn't push them away. He draws them in. He's, Guys, if you'll if you draw closer to God, if you'll just give yourself entirely to God, if you'll love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you'll really get, you'll understand who I am. And then he asked them a question. He says, okay, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they give, this is like a no-brainer for a Pharisee or a Sadducee. This is, this is something that every good Jew would have known. Whose son is the Messiah? And so even today, if you're thinking to yourself, oh, he's God's son, you would, you would sort of miss the culture entirely of those times because the culture Understood. They, they had no concept in the first century of the Messiah being the Son of God. They understood from the Scripture that the Messiah was going to be one of the descendants of David. And so they say, well, of course, he's David's son. And Jesus says, okay, if he's David's son, why does David call him Lord? And Jesus quotes this psalm, this verse from a psalm, and, it's, and it says, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, to get this, to understand this, you have to understand that in Hebrew, it is, it is the name of God that we write as Lord. Literally, it's usually pronounced Yahweh. It's uh, Y-H-W-H would sort of be the equivalent. It's a four-letter Hebrew word That is the name of God. So God says to someone. uh, These things about, you know, just um, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David is saying, God said to my, and now it's my Adonai. And Adonai is a term of respect. It's like saying, sir... Uh, and, and we translate it as "Lord" in the lower case. We don't really use the word "Lord" in that way. It's just a, a term of uh, of respect, a term of elevating someone above yourself and recognizing their position. So Jesus is saying, "Why would David, if if the Messiah is going to be one of his descendants, why would David call him Lord? Why would he show this kind of respect?" And at one level, you can say, he did that because he understood that the Messiah was going to be greater than him, that the Messiah was maybe even existed before him. But I don't think let me, let me, let me tell you what I think is going on in this passage. Now, now think about it. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the sort of the intellectual elite. Of their day, and the thing that amazed me about this passage is that that you get to the end, and it says they did not dare to ask him any more questions. Like, have you ever been in a group of intellectuals? Like, getting them to shut up is really a, a major thing. Like, they always have more questions. There's always more debate. I mean, it's like you know, if you've ever watched a Two college professors debating each other. They just don't like give up. You, do, you don't silence anybody. Somebody has to call time for the thing to be over. Because there's always more questions. There's always another argument. And yet Matthew records for us that when Jesus asked this question, not only do they not know the answer, but they don't dare to ask any more questions. And I'm like, okay, that seems weird to me. Because th- these guys... These, these, are, these are scholars. They're intelligent. They would always have more questions. What's going on here? Because the most obvious thing is, you could say lots of things. You could say, well, I mean, obviously David has respect for the Messiah. You could, you could say, well, obviously, um, I mean, maybe even it shows that the Messiah existed before David. That doesn't mean, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Like, do you see, this is not that Jesus gives an answer that is so smart that nobody knows what to say. This is Jesus revealing the heart of these people. You want to understand why people don't recognize who Jesus is? It is not because they have carefully considered the arguments and deconstructed their faith and come to the conclusion that there is no God or that Jesus is not who he says he is. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, okay, why would King David call one of his descendants Lord? Why would he elevate one of his descendants above himself? And the answer is, because he humbled himself. You see that? that What David has to do to see who Jesus is, is he has to humble himself. Now, here's what's going on. These guys come to Jesus, and they're saying, okay, You think you're the Messiah. We're about to ask you some really tough questions that will prove that you're not. And what Jesus is saying in effect is, guys, that won't work. That's not the way this thing works. There was a a Saturday Night Live Live bit years ago. I think it was with Phil Hartman. Um, And it was this idea of if you went up into like the, the I guess, the northeast and you asked directions, I don't know if this is like a thing in the northeast or not, but the guy, you know, there was always this northeastern accent that Phil Hartman did. And so somebody would come up and say, you know, how do I get to the local hotel? And he would always start out saying, oh, you can't get there from here. And, and you know, then go into this long explanation about how you, ha- you know, basically you have to just go to the other side of the country and start over, kind of a thing. And and, and that's what Jesus is saying to these guys. You can't get to the Messiah from a position of asking hard questions that are going to give you an intellectual basis to prove that you should trust, to prove that you should believe. You've got to humble yourself. You remember that Jesus, in John chapter 3, had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was another one of the intellectual leaders of the people of Israel. Now, he comes to Jesus, and and again, on the surface, it seems that Nicodemus is fairly sincere. But he begins the conversation by saying, Jesus, we have watched what you've been doing, and we think God sent you. In other words, we've evaluated the quality of your ministry— and we feel very confident to give you our seal of approval that God sent you here. And Jesus responds by saying, "Unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God." And I think you got to like read into Nicodemus and like Nicodemus say, "What? You're like What are you even talking about? I mean, I'm just trying to say to you. You know, we, the religious experts of Israel, have evaluated the quality of your ministry and we're giving you thumbs up. We think you're from God. What Jesus says is, that's not how this works. It is not that you are going to question me and get to a place of trusting me. You're going to have to trust me and then I'll answer your questions. What I'm trying to say is that the insincerity of unbelief is that there is in our hearts a desire for God not to be God. And when we begin by saying, I'm going to intellectually figure this out, we will only confirm that desire that is already in our hearts. But if we will come to God, and this is you know, what I'm really trying to do is trying to get you to the point of seeing how we need to approach people in our culture who have bought into these arguments because we would all like to come up with some kind of ironclad answer that we think is going to shut them up that will make us look really smart and good and triumphant and will put them in their place. But what I'm trying to say to you is that that is not how Jesus approached those who were trying to trap him. He didn't come to them and say, okay, you got a question, ask it. Boom, you know, mic drop, and just walk away and say, now see how smart I am. What he said was, just get closer to God, do whatever you can do. To get closer to God. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Get into his word. All of this will make sense if you will draw closer to God. I've always been amazed by Jesus' interaction uh, with one of his disciples very early on where he sees the disciple under a tree. And then, uh, uh, excuse me, the disciple's under a tree and Jesus comes up to him and says, I saw you earlier. Uh, When you were under a tree and the guy says, you're the Messiah, you're the one. And Jesus is like, what? Like that's convincing to you? You know, like, I mean, that's easy to pull off. That's easy. It's easy to trick people. But I'm telling you, you're going to see even greater things. You're going to see the angels, son of man going up and down from heaven. In other words, you're going to see the place where heaven is intersects with earth. What Jesus is saying is, just get closer. Just get closer. That's how, Jesus, I think what he's trying to say is, don't think I'm going to do some kind of miracle that's going to convince you for the rest of your life that I am who I say I am. What I'm saying to you is, get closer to me. And then you will have the kind of faith that will understand the things that are going on around you. So, for an unbeliever, like I think our approach should, should not be, you want to ask me a hard question, I'll give you a brilliant answer. Our, question should always, our response should always be, look, if you can just get a little... Closer to God. Like if you're here today and, uh, you you know, I don't know everybody in the room, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian or maybe you used to be a Christian and you kind of have bought into these arguments, deconstructed your faith, and you're here maybe because somebody guilted you into being here or maybe you just got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. You're just here and you're saying, I don't really buy into all this. All I'm trying to say is, could you at least doubt your doubt just a little bit? Like I know, I mean, it's easy to doubt Christianity, but can you doubt your own doubt of Christianity? Just enough to say something like, God, if you're real, would you, would you just show me? Would you help me? You know, if you're, if you're out there, would you give me some kind of indication? Would you show me in some way? Would you draw me to yourself? And for us as Christians, I think the real challenge of the day that we're living in, I mean, I really have wrestled with this a lot uh, because it seems to me that all this time that the culture has been changing so radically, uh, and if you're, you know, you're old enough to remember these things, um, you know, it, 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 is, it is shocking to see how different the world is today than it was, say, even 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, probably a little more than this, but probably 45 years ago, I can remember on Sundays. Uh, some of you, are some of you guys old enough to remember the blue laws? Yeah? You know, I can remember like going, we would go in the grocery store and the, all the things, that the displays that held beer were chained shut. Like, you know, I mean, it looked like the, the beer had done something wrong and was being put in prison, you know? That's how it was to a little kid. And so we have gone from that to to the world that we live in now, and it it has changed so rapidly and so dramatically. You you really got two choices. You can sit around and be mad about it, or you can start to engage and say, "How, how can I engage people who are so different from me? And what I'm saying to you is the temptation is I'll be smarter than they are. I'll come up with some brilliant answer to their questions that will stun them into silence, like, like Jesus did. What I'm saying is, that's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did was always invite people closer. Uh, years ago, those of you who were here when I was pastor here probably heard this at least half a dozen times. Sorry about that. Um, Years ago, I had a friend who came to me and said, hey, this guy that I work with watched uh, this documentary on the Discovery Channel about the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was before the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found a long time ago, and it was years before they were actually made available. So there was this long period of time when everybody was speculating about what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He said, this guy saw a thing on the Discovery Channel that said the Dead Sea Scrolls are going to show that Christianity and the Bible are completely false, and da-da-da-da-da. And, and, you know, I mean, there was no way to respond because nobody really knew yet what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and I said to him, look, you know, I mean, you, there's no answer to give. We can't, we can't say what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls at this point. But I said, do this instead. Tell him, look, I don't know the answer to this. But let me tell you about how Jesus has changed my life. In other words, invite him closer. Invite him closer to you. Like, don't push people away who are different than you. Don't push people away who have radically different views. Seek to draw them closer. And let Jesus draw them to himself. In other words... Our response is not to be smarter than everybody else, but to be more humble than everybody else. Look, uh, this, that's a tough question. You know, let me just tell you a little bit more about my life and how Jesus has changed my life. Or let me just tell you about who Jesus is from the Scripture. Uh, a simple presentation from the gospel has greater power than the ability to refute all kinds of arguments. We cannot, in this season, we cannot be high and mighty. 30, 40 years ago, you were a Christian. Uh, Like I I recently have watched, um, I have the first two two of the three seasons. I have the first two seasons of the original Star Trek. And so, you know, it's been years since I watched it. Went through and watched again. And I, I mean, and my jaw was on the ground most of the time. Almost every episode of the original Star Trek has a reference to the Bible. Uh, does everybody know what a Tribble is? A trekkie nerd, okay? Trekky nerd. So, I'm watching you guys, and some of you are like, well, I really don't want to raise... You know, I've got to be... Issue of integrity, okay. You know, so you raise your hand slowly. Tribble was a little creature uh, that that causes all of this trouble. And so the most popular episode among Star Trek fans was the original Trouble with Tribble uh, episode. At one point, Spock is holding... You guys that don't watch Star Trek are like, what is this guy even talking about at this point? Spock is holding a Tribble and he says, these things are like the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor do they reap. And I was like, Spock is quoting the Bible. How weird is that? But that was the culture of that time. The whole culture had been influenced by Christianity. And you could talk about Jonah and the whale. And you could talk about the lilies you know, and all that kind of stuff. And people had an understanding of that. That world is gone. Like people today don't know what you're talking about when you make biblical references. And so now, it is not just that if you say, well, you know, the Bible says that behavior is wrong, people won't just say, um, who cares what the Bible says. Now they may even be at a point of saying, what's the Bible? You know, they're, they're not, there's no basis anymore. So we're not going to like, be able to stand above everybody and just sort of declare our morality is the best form of morality. But we can get underneath and humble ourselves and love people enough to try to draw them closer as Jesus did. This passage does show that Jesus is preexistent to David. But what I'm trying to say to you is that's not the strategy of this passage. The strategy of this passage is not give an answer so brilliant that nobody can answer. It is Humble yourself enough to draw people near you so they can see the brokenness of their own hearts. What I'm trying to say is I think the reason why these guys don't ask any more questions is they can't ask any more questions without exposing their hearts even more. And so whereas we tend to draw away from people who disagree with us, Jesus goes after them, and the ones who disagree with him are the ones who've got to pull back because he is so full of life. Life always exposes the reality of death. Light always exposes the reality of darkness. And when Jesus, who lives inside of us, comes out, the hearts of people are made known. What I'm not trying to say to you, well, let me say it this way. We don't need an answer that will confound people. We need a humble invitation to meet a person who will confound people. That that Jesus, you know, like I'm trying to say to you, like you don't have to figure out everything. You just have to know Jesus and make him known to others. And he'll confound them. He'll answer them. He'll, he'll draw them to himself. Now, let me say that for sincere doubters, I'm not trying to, when I say the insincerity of unbelief, I am not saying genuine questions that are, that are real questions that people have. The Bible has lots of room and lots of evidence uh, for people who are doubters. Do you remember we still call him Doubting Thomas? When, when doubting Thomas meets the risen Jesus, Thomas, you remember, if you remember the story, Thomas said, uh, like Jesus appears to the other apostles, Thomas is not there. They tell Thomas, and Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can you know, put my finger in the nail holes in his hand, maybe put my hand in his side. Jesus shows up, and the first thing that he does is not say, Thomas, you're a big jerk. Spent three years discipling you, and you won't, you know, you won't even trust me in this moment. No, the first thing that Jesus says is, Thomas, put your finger right there. I mean, you know, you have to imagine there's a nail hole there, and he puts his and it goes through, you know, it's one of these kind of things. And I mean, like, I'm thinking everybody goes, ooh, gross, but then, you know, they're like, wow, that's really Jesus, and he puts his hand in his side, and it's really Jesus. And then Jesus says, Okay, Thomas, you need to trust me. In other words, he gives him evidence. You remember that Paul uh, said to the to people, in terms of, Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Paul said, Jesus appeared at one point to 500 people, and many of them are still alive. So if you've got doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, you can go talk to any one of these people, and they'll give you eyewitness testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. Christianity is not afraid of sincere questions. But to those who are not sincere, we have to say, hey, can you just doubt your doubt a little bit? Can you just recognize that maybe there's something in your own heart that's keeping you? This this is not an evidence issue. It is a heart issue. And for those of us who are already Christians, our strategy has to be not just give answers to sincere questions. We should do that. But our approach should be to give a humble invitation to even the insincere who are trying to trick us, who are trying to trap us, who are trying to make us look foolish, who are trying to ask us questions that will stump us. Our goal is to give a humble invitation to these folks and say the door is always open. Even if it means us looking foolish, even if it means, you know, like I spend a lot of time reading about apologetics and trying to defend the faith, and I want to be able to answer well, but at the end of the day, what is going to save people is not how smart I am. If that were the case, the world is in trouble it depends on my level of intelligence, we're all in trouble. But at the core of this is will I show by my words and my actions who Jesus is? Because if he gets into the conversation, he'll do the work. He does the heavy lifting. All I need to do is make him know. What I'm trying to say, ultimately, and this is the wrap-up, this is not a time to moan and groan about how, the world, how bad the world is. This is a time of hope. This is a time to make Jesus known. This is a time to go to people who are radically different than you. I mean, this is one of the great things about this. If you're looking at us as missionaries, people go into cultures, who are different and try to communicate with people of a different culture, you get out on the street and walk into 7-Eleven and see if you don't encounter somebody who looks different and talks different and acts different than you. We're all missionaries now. Like the nations, you know, it used to be, let's go to the nations. Well, the nations have come to us. Like I was uh, at Half Price Books yesterday because, sorry, Craig, Craig always says I cheat on him when I go to Half Price Books without him, but, you know, we used to go together all the time. I was in Half Price Books. I, I at least saw four or five different people uh, of different, they look different. I don't, you know, maybe they were born in this country, I don't know, but they look like they were born in different countries. The nations have come to us. So we're all missionaries now. This is not a time to hide. This is not a time to despair. This is not a time to moan and groan about how the world has changed. This is a time to let Jesus shine. This is what he does. He lives in us. All we need to do is humbly invite people. Come learn more about Jesus, and he'll do the rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of scripture that remind us of the greatness of the Messiah, that even David, King David, bowed down before him. But Lord, that also remind us that the only way to know you, Lord Jesus, is to humble ourselves. And so, Lord, we today humble ourselves, knowing that as we become humble in your presence, you will do great things. And so, Lord, would you today remind us of this truth and as we interact with the people around us, people who might have questions, people who might have doubts, people who are full-on unbelievers and maybe hardened atheists, Lord, may we be the kind of people like Jesus who seek to draw them near and humbly offer an invitation to bow before the King. We pray this in Jesus' name.